All right, guys, welcome back to another podcast with Wealth HQ. I'm Andy, and I'm joined today with Simon McDonald. Simon is a father to one. He's a husband. He's a homeowner. You're an investor and moving into that property development and have been there before. Welcome to this conversation today, Simon. Thank you. Thank um, you for having me. I should also add in, you're also a mortgage advisor too. So I sorry am. I missed out on the yeah. intro. Yeah. Um, mortgage <laughs> advisor here at Mortgage HQ. You focus on everything from first home buyers all the way through into the investors and people wanting to get into investment properties. But today we're going to talk about uh, the first home buying journey. Now it's can be a long journey. Uh, it goes from obviously looking to purchase property to eventually settling on it. But today, I want to discuss a few really key fundamentals at the very beginning. Now, we understand when it comes to property, it is a significant financial decision, right? It's important to get a handle over all of your finances. But first, we need to figure out about you know deposits, serviceability, or income, as well as you know implications of short short term debt. And that is what we're going to talk about today. So let's dive into the deposit aspect of things. But before we do that, do you want to? Give a little bit of an introduction to yourself um, and your your background, just a, a brief uh, idea of your background. Hi, everyone. My, my name's Simon, and I'm one of the financial advisors here at Mortgage HQ. I uh, joined the company because I 100% believe in its values. Ultimately, I want to help people through a similar journey that I went through. And so what was that? That was I came from working career. I was uh, initially in the military, then moved to aviation security. But along that, that journey, I, I had the opportunity to get early exposure to property. In the property game, it was through my, my parents. They owned rental properties and dragged me along in the weekends to do some bit of painting and, and, and things like this. So that was my first exposure to that and fell in love with it, you know, like doing the odd job and seeing benefit you get from that. The direct exposure I got was in relation to rent hacking. And if anyone knows what that is, is there's a number of ways to do it. But the way I did it was I took on one property and I was the main tenant. I then rented out all the other rooms and lived in the garage at the time. <laughs> you know, young, young, and you've got the opportunity to do that kind of thing. So that's what I did. And, and I stacked the property. So it wasn't just the one I rented. I rented a few different properties and it was renting out every single room and got a bit of cash flow from that. And, and from there, I thought, wow, you know, like property, there's a way to do things. And at that point, I didn't have a, a deposit, but I worked hard in my career in, in the military and went overseas a couple of times and, and got a bit of dough to go towards my first investment property of which I did. And then it built from there, moving back up into Auckland, where my family's from, originally from. I then started to build a property portfolio. Did some couple of flips, did some renovations, hold some uh, home and income properties, and then got into development, you know, minor dwellings, uh, duplexes, and now I'm on my six or seven lot subdivision. So. Sure. Quite a journey. Yeah. Quite a journey yeah. so far. And you've, you've definitely got a lot of expertise in the property game from the rent aspect of things, but all the way through now and can get quite complex getting to where you are and you know, getting drawings drawn up. But let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to the deposit, right? Because that makes up a really, really big chunk of whether or not you can purchase a property or not. So talk to me, Simon, about the deposit requirements at the moment and how it can be made up as well. Well, I think it's uh, really important to say that there is flexibility and there are options out there. So you should really seek the advice on financial advisors who are willing to help you to show what kind of options you do have. It does and it can seem quite daunting to save up this large deposit that in some cases may be required. But like I say, there is wiggle room. I want to put a little bit of context here. Like I have family and one of my younger brothers, I helped purchase a property not too long ago. So I'm not completely out of touch. You know, like I know I've gone through a couple of uh, property cycles and I know how it feels to start from that 
on him again. And so helping my brother accumulate that deposit was something that I recently helped with, along with a plethora of different uh, clients that I helped with as well. But to answer your question directly, yeah, deposit's really important. The thing that comes to my mind in the perfect world is that you have 20% for an owner-occupier, but that's not in all cases required. If you have a bit of a decent income and you're not looking to exceed that servicing requirement or maximum purchase price, and you're wanting to settle for something like a you know first home, not a forever home, then a lower deposit with having the capacity to service you know a little bit more than what you usually would is very much possible. I would say definitely work so alongside one of the financial advisors to show you how to and navigate through that, that process. So let's talk about, let's go backwards actually. Normally we go from 5, 10, 15, 20 in the requirements here. Let's go backwards this time. I just want to do something different. So 20% deposit. A 20% deposit is obviously you need 20% of the cash, whatever the purchase price is. So 800K, 20% of that is obviously going to be $160,000, right? A lot of money. How can that deposit be made up? I come from a number of different you know, avenues. The way I like to look at it is this, is that when you're young and it's not always when you're young, but let me take the example of when you're young, put your head down, save a little bit of money, up your KiwiSaver. And if you do this for three to five years, it's quite likely that almost anywhere in Auckland, if you're looking entry level, if you combine the savings that you've made over the three to five year period, you combine the KiwiSaver, maybe you get a little bit of gift from mum or dad, hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. not all of us mm-hmm. have less than that in that arena, but those are some of the things that can contribute to 20%, as you say, is gold, it allows you the access to the best interest rates, the, the best treatment from the banks, you know, they're going to love you at that point. And cashbacks, um, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And for anyone that doesn't know what a cashback is, it's, do you want to just explain that really quickly? Yeah, so the bank will provide you an incentive to put your business with them, and they do this by upfront cash. Say at the moment, there's a lot of banks providing a 0.8% on the total lending. So if you've got a million dollars worth of loan, then it's quite likely they'll be giving you $8,000. And the idea of this is that it goes towards the costs of purchasing a home, like your lawyer fees and your moving costs, and you know you need a fridge and a, and a television and, and the like. So the banks recognize this, and they also provide that as an incentive to go with them. So you're talking 20%, that's gold dust, right? And in this current day and age, it's really difficult to actually get up to 20% in some areas. You know, the median house price in certain areas can be, you know, plus 100, no, sorry, plus a million, right? Which is a lot of money, right? 200 grand or 150,000, not everybody has, as you said, the bank of mum and dad to help. Not everybody made or were open to or surrounded by the right advice early on to build up the deposits through KiwiSaver and savings and like. So if you've got a 10% deposit, we can you can still purchase. But what's the difference between 10 and, and 20 other than the amount in which you, you're obviously putting towards the property? It's a really good question because a lot of people are coming in. Like you say, house prices are high. That barrier to entry is high and can seem unattainable. But look, 10% is very possible. You know, uh, 15% is, is more ideal, but let's say 10%. 10% you're looking at needing to require a little bit more servicing than you otherwise would need. And what I mean by servicing is that you have uncommitted income after paying all your bills, including the new mortgage of say $700 to $1,000 a month. And if you can show that, then the bank is willing to provide you a low deposit loan. And usually this comes with a couple of fish hooks (laughs) and those fish hooks are slightly higher interest rates or what could be perceived the carded rates. So not the special rates. These can be seen on, on the bank website. Right. And then there's also, in some cases, some banks will increase their carded rate or 
an upfront fee that in some cases you can capitalize onto the loan. So you don't need it in cash. So that can be quite a benefit for some of the clients. And I think there's a big difference between those two options in all honesty, you know, 0.25, 0.5 on top of a carded rate, particularly now can be substantial. And again, just comes back to getting advice because every bank's are different and we're not going to talk about particular banks today, but it shows you the importance of talking to an independent advisor that's going to be able to help you navigate, as you said. So what you're saying is that the difference between 20% and 10% is the fact that you may not get better rates. The fact that your upfront cash or your cash back could be limited or not even available might cost you more as well. Is there any requirements? Like, Do you still have access to all main banks with 10% or do you only really have access to who you currently bank with? The quick answer without understanding the total client situation is that you do have access to a number of main banks at that level. And you know we're starting to enter at the 10% and lower. I'm sorry, that's the next question is to do with, okay, so we've got the 10%. And including in the 10%, you've got the 5%ers. You know, when we're getting this low of a deposit, there are avenues that you can explore. Kayanga Aura, for example, provide, uh, you know, a backing and they guarantor in some cases and in some cases go in for own a share of the property. And, you know, it gets a little bit complicated at that point and, and it's best to consult your financial advisor and see whether or not that's the best thing for you. But at the very least, understand it in depth so that you can make an informed decision. Yeah, and we will talk uh, more in depth on another episode about Kyung Order because it is a, a quite a ne- not a niche market but a lot of people fall into that who really want to get into property now but more importantly there's a lot of conditions that go along with it right and it the application process does take longer and, and it's really good to have someone there to navigate that with you. But so we've got the five, we've got the 10, the 15 and the 20%. We've got different levels of what you can achieve at both. One requires more money up front, but at the exact same time, you get the better rates, you get the better cash back. At 10%, you still have access to multiple banks, but you might be either paying a low equity fee or a low equity margin. So an increased rate or a fee to go there and you might not get a cash back, right? And at 5%, you most, at 5%, do you get the same? Like, do you still get carded rates or are you again implicated by these low equity fees and margins? Yeah, you're right. You are subject to the higher rate at that point. Well, what I would say at this point is that, you know, a lot of people are hyper-focused on getting the best deal and getting everything. Like you can't have everything. The world's not like that. You can't you know? need it too, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. So look, what I would say is if you're motivated to get into a home, if the time is ready for you and your family or you as a single person to make that leap and these options and opportunities are available to you, take it. Look, especially in this time of the market, I think it's a brilliant time. Worst case scenario is that you don't get into the market and the market starts to pick up again and you get priced out altogether. Yeah, really, really good point there. And I think in summary is that when it comes down to these deposit requirements, you mentioned really early on that it can be cash, it can be KiwiSaver, but you also mentioned a gift, right? So you're referring to maybe mum or dad or, or somebody giving you money that doesn't have to be repaid, right? Is that the way it goes? Yeah, and I, and I want to kind of break that into two different parts. There is a gifting certificate or outright gift. There are no legal ramifications for that person who gifted you that money to get that money back. There is another way. And the other way, if you want that money back, say if you're a parent, you don't 
need it, but you want it back because, say, you want to distribute it later on to the other members of the family. And what you don't want to do is gift your son 10 grand, they buy an occupy home, then they sell it and then take that 10 grand out and go for a good old holiday. No, there is a backstop there where you integrate that won't affect the borrower. And that is quite clearly what's called a deed of acknowledgement of debt. And it's attached to the sale of the property. Let's say I give my son uh, or daughter a $10,000 or $20,000 gift. And in this case, it's a deed of acknowledgement of debt. The lawyer writes up this document saying that it's non-interest bearing and payable on the sale of the asset. So therefore, if you do sell and liquidate and get your deposit out, including all the contributions you made, plus that gift and you got from your family, that gift is then needing to be returned to that family member at that point, And it doesn't affect your servicing capacity. If you set up a loan, that's where it becomes a little bit of a problematic because the bank sees that as a loan and will calculate that interest and reduce your ability to lend because effectively it's, a, it's another loan. Now is probably a better time than ever to move on to the serviceability aspect because that get, that word gets thrown a lot around a lot in this industry, right? Because we know exactly what it means. There's many different terms for it, but we are talking about deposits and 20% and 15s and fives. One thing I think people need to understand is if you have, you've got an amount of money that you can service. And if you've got a smaller deposit, it does mean that your serviceability or the amount, sorry, the purchase price of the property is going to be lower. But overall, can you just explain what serviceability means? And then following that, we're going to run through sort of the the areas of what does affect serviceability. But in a nutshell, what is serviceability? Cool. So serviceability is your ability to service the loan you're wanting to take out. It's as simple as that. If you're wanting to take a $100,000 loan out to buy a $100,000 house at 100%, say, I wish we could do that these days, (laughs) then you would need to be able to service that loan plus all your other commitments and have a small uncommitted income at the end of every month. Which is a surplus. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Better better way to put it. More commonly used. So yeah, you, you probably we need at least about a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars a month surplus. It's important to understand here if you're doing your own calculations, it's not based on the repayments on the current interest rate. It's based on the test rates. And I know, I, I know you want to maybe talk about that. Is that part of yeah, the? Bring yeah, it yeah. in. Bring it in. Okay. <laughs> I do want to talk about that because it's right. a it's a common misconception that okay. we get. Is that I went and had a look online and I can afford this amount, and but you're telling me you Why can't is the bank afford not this? giving it to me. Why, yeah. Exactly. So t- yeah. talk to me about about the the difference between those two things. Cool. So the Reserve Bank, but also banks have a responsibility uh, for lending to ensure both the ability for the person to to repay this loan, uh, even if market conditions change. Like Absolutely. We've Recently, we've seen massive increases in, in interest rates. You know, I, I remember helping getting someone across the line at the bottom of the market with interest rates, uh, sorry, with test rates that are equivalent to interest rates now. And well, what is the difference between a test rate and an interest rate? Interest rate is what you see marketed online on the bank in the bank window, you know, yes, currently it's probably about 6.95. Yeah, 6.99 on the one year rate. This is what you're going to have to pay on a regular basis or that during that fixed term. A test rate is what is used in the back end calculator to ensure that if rates go up to a certain level, the borrower can still afford that loan. And so at the moment, we're looking at interest rates around the 9%. At testing rate. Yeah, sorry, test, testing rates at, at the 9%. Rate. And the yep. interest rate on a whole for a one-year period is what? 6, 6.95, 6.99 at the so moment. So let's just say 7%. So they're adding another 2%, the banks are. And they're asking, more or less in a nutshell, saying, Simon, you want to buy this home. Can you afford it at 9%? 
If you can't afford it at 9%, they'll either reject it saying you can't afford that level of of debt, or they'll say this is your max serviceability, the max amount you can loan or lend or afford to repay, and you've got to drop your purchase price. Is that right? Okay. Testing rate, interest rate, two different things. Always look at a slightly higher interest rate when you're calculating these. But does that change? Let's put a, I want to give you a scenario. We've got somebody out there who wants to do a 10% loan, right? They want to buy with a 10% deposit. Now, there's going to be a low equity margin on top of that, potentially. So let's just say for argument's sake that they are going to be paying 0.5% above the, the carded rate at 7%, okay, hypothetically. So they're going to be paying six point, sorry, 7.5%. Does that mean the testing rate also goes up by that carded rate margin or not? No, but like I previously mentioned about the need for additional servicing capacity or additional uncommitted income or additional surplus, a good rule of thumb is about $750 to $1,000. If you want to be conservative, go for about $1,000 a month additional you need to prove so as the bank feels comfortable with lending at a low deposit. Okay. So what we have is a, a lot of people out there could be high income earners, but have no deposit, right? Uh, they've done travel, they've done whatever. So they could go in and they could afford all of this because they've got a higher serviceability or they can afford to borrow more money, but they still need to put a deposit together, right? Well, you might have people with a big deposit and on either low or modest incomes or buying on their own and think, I've got $200,000 of cash here from saving and all of these options, but I still can't afford to buy a home. Now that just comes down simply to the amount in which you can lend at this current moment, right? Because back two years ago, that one person could have maybe afforded to service $200,000 more worth of debt back then than they can now. So things most certainly have changed. Things are most certainly more difficult. That's fair to say. Yeah. I don't want to fall into the camp that I do see a lot of people saying, oh, it was always easier back then. You know, It's quite easy to look at that and say that, that is the case. But was it? Because I've got my own feelings on this. Was it easier back then? I would say that there's a lot of stuff you could say to point towards it being easier. Look, the price point is, a, is an easy one, right? But we all know that other things have increased. But income hasn't increased as much. But other things have decreased, like, for example, your interest rate and your test rate. So it shouldn't be easy to buy your first time. Mm. Well, it's not. It should be a bit of an effort. All good things take a bit of an effort. If you come within that with that mindset, you're much more likely to be able to achieve some of the goals that you're wanting to meet than by looking back and saying, you know, oh, it, was, oh, it was so much easier for you yeah. guys. It was so much easier a back then. Attitude. That's right. That's right. If we're talking, to, you know, outside of, um, if you have a really good attitude and you're, and you're willing to, to put the effort in, outside of all of that, I would say that there are factors to say that that was easier in previous cycles uh, than it was uh, now, but there are things now that continue to bring opportunities to the table. And I would say people should look towards those as, as a positive thing and try to grasp them and take advantage while they can. I think it's a really good way to put it. It wasn't necessarily easy back then and it should be difficult. And now when we talk and point back and you say, well, interest rates were low, but property prices were out of this world expensive, mm -hmm. right? Um, you weren't getting as much bang for your buck. Whereas now you have to tighten things up a little bit. We're in a recession, inflation's really taking hold. We're all feeling it in the pocket. Looking at what we're able to hold on to is really important. And that is probably another conversation where we've already had that before about budgeting and how important that is. But we understand that you know, to buy a first home, we need to focus on the the whole picture. One of them is about building up a deposit and what level do you want to enter the market? Is it 5, 10, 15 or 20? And are you actually able to do it? The second one to summary is like, do we have enough money to service a loan to purchase the property that we want to buy, right? And we need to look at our options around that because a low deposit means that the purchase price no doubt is probably going to be lower as well because we need to service more 
debt. Now, a lot of things impact serviceability, the amount we can afford to borrow. And this is something I really want to hone in on. And it's short-term debt because we refer to debt as such things as good debt and there's certain things called bad debt. So short-term debt, what is it? Yeah, short-term debts are those kind of debt. Traditionally, you've got your higher purchases, your buy now, pay now, uh, pay later facilities, your credit card, car loans, shorter period type loans, higher interest rates. And 99.99% of the time, these loans are, are usually used for expenses or depreciating assets. They're not for things that are increasing your productivity. They're not things that are going to hold on to assets that increase in value over time. What I would say is that is a very good example of bad debt. Short-term debt, high purchase, car vehicles, credit card, things like that. Now, without knowing specifics or without talking about a specific case in general, how does short-term debt, a credit card, a high, you know, a high um, limit credit card or a, a vehicle finance, how does that affect the ability to purchase a property and how much you can borrow? Massively. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, like threefold. Yeah. So a good rule of thumb is if you've got a $10,000 limit credit card and you're really good and you use it every month and then pay it off every month, it's still going to affect you because the capacity to draw down on that $10,000 is always there. And the bank will, will, will use that as a method to take into consideration. What's important to understand here is that the bank sees it as a risk. You can always take out that $10,000 and spend it and make minimum repayments. Therefore, they test you on that. And so when I said threefold, what I mean by that is if you've got a $10,000 limit on a credit card, it's probably going to reduce your lending capacity by $30,000. Wow, really? Yep. So up to, yeah. Wow. So the amount I can put towards a home in this scenario is $30,000 less with a $10,000 credit card, irrespective of if I pay that off every single month or not. Correct. Wow. But I assume uh, you can condition, but that's a different conversation, but you can condition for this, right? So you don't need to close it before uh, you purchase a property, but you can say, look, upon buying this home, I will close that account. Is that that's okay to do? Yeah, 100%. We have clients wanting to push the envelope all the time. And so some of these little things that, that we can put in part of the application to close your credit card is one of those things that get you that additional lending. You will have to close the credit card and show evidence of that prior to the settlement of the property. Right. Now, short-term debt, we talked about credit cards, vehicle finance, and all of that. Now, in my side of the business, I see a lot of it, people who have not really had the education early on to know what to do and taken out quite a lot of different sorts of loans. It could be high purchase. It could be afterpay. We see that all everywhere after pay, right? A cue card, interest-free, there's loads of them out there. What is your opinion on paying off the smallest one first or paying off the largest interest rate first? The highest interest rate, I should say. It's a hard one because I see the benefits in both and I've seen people argue for both sides. I personally would pay off the higher interest one first, but I get the psychology of paying off the smaller debts because it's get, you're getting rid of you're getting rid of them uh, faster. I would say it comes down to whatever works for you and it comes down to the, the tendencies of the client or the person that you're advising for. So if the person you know, gets a big kick out of reducing these loans and that they have more motivation to pay off a certain loan faster because you're getting rid of it first, then moving on to the higher interest larger loan, then all for you. Whatever helps you pay down that debt as fast as possible. And now is there a difference in the bank size for having maybe six different types of accounts versus one consolidated with one provider. The value, the amount's still the same. Did the bank look at it differently saying, look, you've got six different accounts, this person has more of an attitude towards short-term debt, or do they look at it as this person only has one but a higher amount? 
let's dive into that? Or is it both the same? I think it comes down to more your account conduct. If you've got five different short-term loans and you're making the payments on all of them and you never skip a beat, never, never miss a payment, then that's not going to be a problem. It's important to understand that just because you have a $5,000 drawn down facility with a $10,000 limit, they're going to assess you on the full limit size. Take into consideration all those facilities and, and understand how that works and affects you. But ultimately, what I would say is there is a really good step. Like What you want to do is you, you want to get ultimately on top of and take care of debt. Debt's a good thing. Debt can be utilized. Great things. It increases your exposure. It increases your capacity to do things. When I mentioned about taking on debt for increasing productivity or taking on debt for cash flowing assets that increase in value over time, it's a brilliant thing. It's a way of building wealth. And I see that and I love promoting it because I, I do think it's a way of uh, most millionaires are created through this, this type of leveraging, especially through property. But it's about being able to be on top of those facilities and you being in control, not those facilities plan taking control of you. You're saying have a structured plan. If you're going to pay these off, have a structured plan to making sure you do that, making sure you're transferring money at the beginning of your pay cycle, not at the end, because yeah. we know that that, that system <laughs> doesn't work, right? Now, one other really positive thing that we actually forgot uh, with 20% deposits, and it comes into this debt aspect as well. If you've got a 20% deposit or more, you can consolidate short-term debt, can't you? 100%. But can you consolidate short-term debt below 20% deposit? Good question. You can, but it won't be with that bank. You can solid, You can do in like an asset finance consolidation, which extends the term, which reduces your overall repayments, which increases your serviceability or your surplus, right? So that allows you to borrow more at that other bank. The other bank is going to need a, a legitimate certain amount of percentage of deposit. And obviously that variety between the five and 20% that we discussed. So what you can't do, for example, is consolidate or take out a loan to use towards the deposit. Right. That can't be done. Yeah. It's important to know if you've got less than 20%, it's unlikely that especially a main bank is going to be able to consolidate those whilst not having 20% equity. Consolidation in, in simple terms is just adding one debt to another effectively, like merging them yeah. together. So what you're saying is that if you have more than 20% of a property price, but you do have some short-term debt, you can potentially merge it all together, pay interest rates for your property that includes obviously that portion of debt and not pay 15, 16%, reducing your outgoings and increasing the surplus you have left over and the amount effectively in which you can borrow. The key component there is to take full advantage of the additional cash flow and utilize facilities like a revolving credit to keep that in the facility to pay effectively pay down the debt. You, you still have liquidity, you still have access to that in the sense of the revolving credit. But what, what that means is that instead of increasing your cash flow and pushing out the debts for, in some cases, a longer term, means that you actually pay more. So you it don't want to do that. No. You, if you do do that, you want to seize the, the yep. opportunity of utilizing that cash flow to not spend it you know, on, on well, no. additional yeah. expenses or increased expenses. What you do instead is that you use that to pay down the debt faster. And you can do that by So what we're effectively of... saying is that there are opportunities, but it's really important to create a structured plan if you do have short-term debt. That's the number one. We need to understand what type of client we're dealing with, what motivates that person. Is it reducing 
you know, the easy ones first is a sense of acknowledgement, or is it paying down the higher interest rate accounts first? You're going to talk to a lot of people, a lot of people have different opinions, but ultimately, sometimes I do see if you say the highest interest rates first, and it might be the, the highest amount they've got, it, they don't feel like they're getting ahead, right? That can just negatively impact people. So there's not, you're trying to say, I guess there's not one fit for all. Everybody is different. When it comes down to deposits, there are multiple opportunities to get gifts, utilize your KiwiSaver, increase the amount you have in your account, increase contributions into your KiwiSaver too, because these all come together to make up how much you can obviously lend from the bank. And then the last one is the serviceability, how much we're actually able to afford, making sure that we're not taking carded rates, making sure that there is a a percentage over and above that. But overarching, the one thing that is really important here, I think is speaking to somebody who knows about all of this, right? And we're lucky to have a large group of people within our organization that looks at the very start, it looks at, can we afford to purchase? And if not, how do we accelerate that journey? Do you have short-term debt? And what might be the best way to tackle that for that particular person? Is the QE7 maximized? and working for them. And then when somebody's ready, it's all packaged up and here you are to be able to help that person with a mortgage, whether it be 5% all the way through to 20 or more, you're here to help with a first, second, third property purchase. But you've also got access to every single bank and every second tier lender. It's getting a little bit late in the day. So I just wanna finish off really quickly with that second tier lender aspect of things because we've got the main banks. There are opportunities for people out there who might have bad credit and really worried about that where they might have to go elsewhere for six or 12 months. Talk to me a little bit about how that works and then we'll sign off. I think it comes back to what we were talking about with regards to should I enter the market now at 5%? Well, what I would say is that if you've got some bad history and credit, for example, and it's within a scope of, let's say, three to six months, but you've changed changed things around and you're paying your bills now and, and you're getting on top of things. I had a client the other week that it was years ago, had a car accident and he wasn't insured. And this is still on his credit and it's holding him back at Main Bank. Now, we got him into a home, a second tier lender. They are slightly higher interest rate, but he's going to be able to refinance in six, six months to 12, 12 months and be in a, in a position where he's got a home. Since then, the home's gone up 30000 on on the desktop valuation. So it's really important to understand that just because there's additional roadblocks in the way sometimes, you should leverage the opportunities that you have, especially the free services that you can get in some certain circumstances. You know, financial advisors are a brilliant way to be able to get clarity and have accountability. This is a really big thing. You know, someone that uh, you've got a meeting booked with next week who's going to run through the numbers with you and say, these are your next steps. And then they'll get in touch with you within that time frame and say, how are you getting on and, and things like this. And, and, and that can really help people. When you feel like things are mounting up against you and it's all too hard, what that will do is provide you clarity and a framework to work within, provides that stability for motivation to move forward. So, so what you're saying is a financial advisor effectively is there to provide clarity, help you navigate stormy waters, help understand what you can service, what type of properties maybe you should be looking for, what would suit your needs, and ultimately hold your hand through the whole process is what we're there to do. Now, I think the best thing about this is that all well, within our organization, I think all financial advisors are the same, but we are all paid by the bank, which means that it is free of charge. It is no obligation to people. So reaching out and getting your ducks in a row is only going to help you move forward. It's only going to benefit you because we only get paid when you get or when 
our clients reach their end goal, right? A really important thing. There's no fees for coming to talk to somebody like us. And we're lucky in New Zealand that majority cases, that is the, the way, but it's free. It's no obligation. And you wouldn't go to your mechanic to ask about a lump on your back, would you, right? You, you, you go to your doctor, right? And this is the same. We're effectively financial doctors. We diagnose, we look at things and we go from there. Is there anything else you might like to add uh, about anything we've spoken about before we close this off, Simon? I would say if you're listening to this podcast and you've come across it because you uh, want to buy your first home and you think there are roadblocks in the way, book yourself in, have a conversation with one of the financial advisors here at our Wealth HQ or Mortgage HQ, at least get a framework of what the next steps are and you can work towards that with a little bit more motivation than you otherwise would. If you have something to aim towards and aim for, you're much more likely to hit the target than if you drifted around hopelessly. Well so said. get in touch and we'll help you out with that clarity. Well said. <laughs> love that. I love that. Thank you very much, Simon, for joining us today. It's been uh, riveting as as always. My pleasure. Not going to be the last time, I hope. And uh, well, we'll catch up soon. So thank you all for listening. And until next one, see you later.